Welcome to the Brand Design Masters podcast, the show dedicated to helping you build the skills you need to design bulletproof brands for yourself, your business, and for the clients and customers you serve. And now, here's Philip. Hi, everyone. I want to do a little introduction in this episode because it's kind of special. My close colleague and sometimes agency partner, Kathy Onetto, and I have been talking a lot recently about the topic of leaving corporate. This is an important topic these days because of the pandemic, and it brought on a huge outflux of people from full-time jobs, whether that was by choice or as a result of factors outside of their control. I'm sure you've heard about it. The media is calling it the great resignation. Well, I'm talking about when you leave a full-time job, whether it's at a company for most people, when they call themselves an employee of some sort, working in a particular area of expertise, or as a creative professional at an in-house internal marketing or design department, or at an agency of some kind. Well, Kathy and I have had requests from our listeners as well as our private coaching clients to address this topic on our podcast in depth. So we decided to do a series of podcast episodes together and each of us post them on our respective podcasts. Now, Kathy's podcast is called Sustainable Ambition and you can find a link to it in the show notes. And as we started planning the episode series, we realized it's a really big topic and we could probably write a book on it. So the idea quickly grew into a five-episode series. So the topics of the five-episode series will break down like this. In the first episode, we'll talk about how to start building your brand while you're still employed. And then in the second episode, we'll talk about recognizing when it's time to go. And in the third, what to do before you pull the plug. Number four is going to be all about getting resourced and how you start building. And then number five is getting your brand and your new business going the setup, and beyond. Now, we've never attempted something like this kind of joint podcast idea before, so we knew there would be a lot of learnings that came up while we were doing it, and we both kind of like being crash test dummies in that regard. Let's just do it and see what happens. So one thing we noticed after the first episode was that when you get two podcasters together, one of you inevitably ends up leading the conversation kind of in the interviewer way. And when you listen back, it kind of sounds like their show. So what I'm trying to say is in these five episodes, leaving corporate series, sometimes Kathy is leading the conversation and sometimes I take the lead for the episode. And when she leads, it feels like her show. And sometimes when I'm leading, it feels like my show. It's a little weird, like I said. So we ended up just kind of splitting it up. Who would lead the conversation? So try not to be confused about that part of it. So let's jump right into the conversation in the fourth episode of the Leaving Corporate series, where we talk about how you get resourced and start building. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. I'm Philip Van Dusen from the Brand Design Masters podcast, and I am here with Kathy Onetto from the Sustainable Ambition podcast. So Kathy and I are doing a five-part series on leaving corporate and building a business or a personal brand. And so we found out that it's kind of easier if one of us kicks off an episode and acts like the leader to a certain extent in the conversation. And so Kathy and I have been kind of trading off this responsibility. And our plan is to both publish this series on each of our podcasts. So that's why we're kind of introducing it in this way, because it may seem weird that some of the podcast episodes I'm going to post on my channel feel like they're Kathy's podcast episodes and it's going to be vice versa. So anyway, that's what's happening. So this episode is episode number four, where we're going to be talking about getting resourced. Actually, what you are going to do and start building in terms of the infrastructure in your business. And those are things like, Kathy kind of framed it out as like front office and back office. 
brands. And then there's also the people part. We're going to talk a little bit about like, what is a brand ecosystem? What is this thing? And what are you going to call it in terms of the land that you now own? And that can be things like your website, your social media platforms, your email list. It can be how your legal system is set up, your physical office, whether that's someplace you rent or whether it's in your home, the various business functions you have within your business, and also the people piece. So the kind of the networked piece, you know, who are you going to need to develop relationships with and use on a regular basis? And how are those going to figure into your business? So I'll just kick off the definition piece of it, which is when you start out on your own, you now have to build your own brand. And there's this saying that says, don't build your brand on rented land. And everybody has a piece of their brand or multiple pieces of their brand on rented land, on social media, on things that you don't own. But you do want to have and build a brand ecosystem that has a home base in something that you control. And so that's just framing out the idea of a brand ecosystem. So the first place is your home platform. And this is generally your website. So you want to be thoughtful and planful about what you need to have on it and what this site's going to do for you. So Kathy, when you started building your home platform, your website, right out of the gate, what was it that you thought that you needed or you had to have it do there? What were people going to do there? What was it for? Well, it's really interesting, Philip, because one of the things I'll say, even before I got to the website, and this is because you and I are branding geeks and have expertise in brand strategy, is that I did a brand positioning. I did all that work up front to be clear on what was my positioning, what was, as we talked about in the last episode, what was the brand name I was going to use. And I went through the process of selecting my brand colors, all of that. Like there's a lot one needs to actually even think about before they start to build that website. But you asked me like, what was the purpose of that website and what did I want it to kind of present? And with the first business that I started and I still have is the agency Onetto, I purposely chose to brand it that way instead of saying Kathy Onetto Consulting. And because my initial intention was that I did believe I was going to be bringing partners in to support me and work with me, not support me, but really work with me and partner with me on different projects. And I wanted to be able to have the scale of being able to do larger projects if I wanted to versus just it being me as a solo person putting my shingle out. So my brand website needed to present that frame of what the business was needed to present my positioning, what my service offers were and my products that I was looking to sell. And then there needed to be some credibility elements as well. And what I mean by the credibility elements are like, what is your about? What are your reasons to believe? How are you different? How are you conveying that? So certainly thought through all of that and ultimately got to some content pieces too, but we can talk about that. I know that might come up later in the conversation. Those were some of the things that I was thinking about when I first started to build out my website. You know, one of the things we've been talking about is that building a business, you start out of the gate with a concept and idea, but it evolves very quickly and it can get messy very quickly and you have to expect it to evolve. This is the one area, brand design, where that doesn't work for you. And that is that when you start a business or a social media profile or two, you're launching a website, soon as you open that WordPress program and you have to like put a logo at the top or you have to choose a color palette, you have to choose fonts, those sorts of decisions are going to live with you forever. 
So being planful about your brand design is probably one of the best investments you can make as a business person at the beginning. The overarching concept of that is that if you make those decisions haphazardly and just choose the color on your website, then you go on a social media and you choose a different color, a different font. Before you know it, within months, you're going to have visual assets which are disparate and unlike each other across a huge range of brand touch points for your business. And you will eventually have to go back and clean them all up. You will have to go back and make them consistent, look consistent, feel consistent, have a consistent voice. So this is the one place on the Brand Design Masters podcast, anyway, a lot of our listeners, you out there are designers, so I'm preaching to the choir here, but this is where kind of making an investment and stopping and planning a little bit is really, really important because developing a brand identity, choosing a color palette, choosing fonts that you're going to use consistently, establishing some sort of design style, even maybe how you're going to use stock photography. Do you have any sound that you might want to have associated with your brand? Do you have any kind of pattern or texture or icons that you might be using consistently? Whatever those choices are that you make, you want to be really, really sure about them because they're going to be propagating themselves across a huge range of assets very quickly. And if you're not making those decisions and you're developing those assets, and you're going to have to go back and change them all. So it's always a good investment to be consistent about at the beginning. When you were doing that, Kathy, did you, were you planful about it? Did you just make the decisions on the fly or how did that work for you? Oh, no, I was very planful. And that's because I think you and I have this training, right? Yeah, we're branding we, people. We, we're branding people. We kind of, <laughs> we know the importance of consistency and we love this stuff. And I'm going to say, I just want to put this out there because I have this expertise and I know its importance and I know enough to be dangerous is I did this for myself. Now, there are a couple of tools out there that can also help you. And I'm going to mention them in just one second. But if you do not have expertise in this area, in my opinion, it is worth investing in the resources and the experts who can help you in the space in crafting your brand and bringing it to life. It will pay dividends. You know, again, you have to make choices of where you're going to lean in and make investments. And again, because of my background, I went ahead and did it for myself, but I'm planning on engaging somebody to kind of take me to the next level and make that next iteration and up my game a little bit because it's that time. So if you can carve out some resources, some investment, there's so many good resources out there. Philip does this work as an example, but there I are do. plenty of... Huh, funny you, <laughs> you should mention that. <laughs> but a lot of people do this work. There's a lot of great resources. Designers, they have a skill set they're bringing to the table. Pay them. Pay them for their skill set. And yet, I am also going to just admit, Canva is a resource out there. Sure. Absolutely. My team uses Canva for my social media assets. So it's like no fault. Yeah. But even in Canva, there's so many choices within Canva that if you don't know what your brand colors are, your brand fonts are, you can get led down a rabbit hole really quickly. You have to really have a plan set out. And once you do, once you have that visual vocabulary that you're going to use, developing those assets and making those decisions come a lot faster because you don't have to wait and go, oh, what font should I use? Oh, what color should I use? It's already laid out for you. you. You have to follow a formula and you'll thank me for it. 
And it doesn't mean that you have to pay someone at the agency level that I'm at to get a good product. You can get people who are just out of school who understand the principles and maybe can work within your budget. But if you understand the assets that you need and know that they all have to live together, taking that time to do that in the beginning is critical and it will pay for itself down the line. Yeah, for sure. And I do want to also just point out, if it's okay, Philip, that I chose to use Squarespace for my website platform, and I'm not getting anything for saying that. I've been really happy with Squarespace. And I think depending on the size of really website or the amount of complexity you need, because you may not need that much. Like again, Squarespace is a fabulous product that gives you good design. You still may not know the fonts you need to use or the colors you need to use, but just know as a platform, it gives you a place to start. There's just so many tools out there that can help get you started and frankly, make it so affordable, which allows all of us to kind of be operating on our own the way that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And my website's on Squarespace too, because I wanted to manage it on my own. And now my website with all of the blog posts has grown to such a scale that changing over to something else would be prohibitively expensive at the moment. So I'm kind of stuck there. I mean, but there is WordPress and for designers, there's Webflow and all sorts of new applications that you can use to develop websites to make them a lot more beautiful, have a lot more flexibility in design, a lot more bells and whistles. But to get started, can choose something that's easily manageable, Wix even, you know, for that matter. So let's pivot to social media platforms a little bit. You have to show up on social, right? We know that you probably should have a LinkedIn profile, maybe a LinkedIn business profile. That's a given. But then you say, okay, should I be on Facebook? Should I be on Twitter? Should I be on Instagram? Should I be on Pinterest? There are so many platforms and they have different purposes and different demographics, some of them. So when you were faced with that decision, like, okay, where am I going to show up as a business on social? How did you make that determination, Kathy? This is where I step back to my marketing training and I think is so important to start here because, you know, you are saying, Philip, like you should be on social. And I will say there are some people who might push back on that. And I will just say, it's likely you may be on at least one. And the way that I start to think about this first is to first off, think about your business model and think about who you need to target or who you are trying to reach. Who is that customer target? Who's going to buy what you're going to sell? And where do you find them? Where is it best to reach them? Where are they looking for services like yours? And so thinking about that first and where might they be finding you from a credibility kind of standpoint as well, depending on what your services are, that funnel of thinking that through versus just assuming, oh, I have to be on Instagram. Like if you are a B2B kind of product offer, I don't know that you need to be on Instagram, right? And so you really need to think about where is my customer target? Where do they live? Where are they finding information? So for me, that's what I did. I thought about, well, where do I find business people? And part of me reaching them wasn't even going to be on social. It's usually through word of mouth that people are like, hey, do you know a branding person? Do you know a marketing person, et cetera? So that's part of it. But I still wanted to have credibility around what is my expertise? What is my discipline? And so I chose LinkedIn as the primary place that I was going to plant a flag, if you will, and have more content being presented there. And then the second one was Twitter. And because again, you have more thought leaders and business-oriented folks on Twitter posting there. 
And one of the things I'll just say here too, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, Philip, but I appreciate it. And most of the time, this is what I hear from people is that don't think you have to be everywhere. Start with, again, those couple of places that are most relevant for you because it can get really overwhelming. And I think people make the assumption that they have to be everywhere. And that may not be the case. And, you know, there's some people out there that preach now and really will go out there and say, you know, I'm running a successful business without being on social. I don't want to be on social anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of disconnecting because of many factors, which is probably a separate podcast (laughs) where they don't want to be engaging for a number of different factors, like or reasons on social media. So, but that's how I approached it. This is another place where having a network or a mastermind or something where you can ping other people who are in your space to find out where their customers are, where they're having success. Because you can cut to the chase by learning from the experience of others. Because when you're going out on social for the very first time, it's very difficult to tell where your audience is or where they're finding their service providers, et cetera. Lots of times it's a quicker jump if you get some feedback from somebody about where they are doing business or where they've been successful because, you know, it may save you three months of time talking into the void where your customers aren't hanging out. Did you experience that? You know, I'll admit I didn't because I think I was thoughtful about who am I trying to reach and where will I find them or where should I show up? But I actually want to bring it back to you, Philip, because in a prior episode, you had talked about how you started through your network and through the masterminds you were learning and you Mm -hmm. kind of started to learn about others doing content marketing and you were like, oh, that's my jam. And then you chose to lean into a couple of different channels, including YouTube. And so I'd be curious to have you share a little bit more about how did you choose your social media platforms? And you've had a lot of success there. So maybe you can share just a little bit of insight around how you made those choices and what's worked for you. Yeah. I mean, design is visual. So I knew that I should probably be on a platform that had a visual component to it. So that took Twitter out of the equation, even though you could say, yes, you can post visuals on Twitter, but it's not driven by visuals. So I learned a lot about repurposing early on and people who were developing content, but then reusing it in a different format on a different platform. So you were developing an original piece of content, but then you were expanding your reach with it by repurposing it in a different format. And when I thought about my content, I thought, well, first of all, I didn't start really with social. I started with my website, some lead magnets, and driving people to those lead magnets so I could get their email address. And I started with publishing a newsletter for six months before I did anything else really on social. So I focused on developing my own email newsletter first, and I did that for six months. And then I said, okay, I'm either going to develop a YouTube channel or a podcast. And so I had to weigh those two and decide what were the pros and cons of them. And I thought, well, YouTube is visual, number one. So that really helps. Podcasting is like, you know, dancing about sculpture. You can talk about design, but you can't show it. I thought YouTube was going to be very important that way because it was visual. And number two, as a repurposing platform, YouTube can be repurposed better and further than any other medium. You can get transcripts from YouTube videos and turn them into blog posts or articles. You can take the audio and publish that as a podcast. And so I thought if there is a platform that's got the most legs, it's YouTube. And I also saw that 
video was going everywhere. So Facebook was starting to develop video and Instagram was developing video and Twitter, you know, it's just like everyone was building a video component of their platform. And I just thought this is a sign. So I started publishing on YouTube. We could have a whole episode about, you know, how you go about publishing consistently and building an audience on a platform. But just quickly, what I would say is you want to set yourself a schedule where you can comfortably post and post on that schedule like it's a job. And if you miss a date, then you're out of a job because that's really the only way to go about it. I did that with my newsletter, said I'm going to publish a newsletter once every two weeks. I did that with YouTube. I said I'm going to publish one video every week. And I got that engine going and kept that up for a long period of time. But I did have dead ends too. Like I had heard from people that Twitter was great for having conversations and there were a lot of marketers on it, et cetera. So I was tweeting, I was promoting my videos on Twitter. So when I would post a video on Monday, I would schedule using Hootsuite, all these, you know, two tweets a day, five days a week, promoting my videos. You had to write original tweets because you couldn't copy and paste the same tweet because Twitter would, you know, not accept that or Hootsuite wouldn't. So I was putting a lot of time and energy into Twitter. And it wasn't until six months later that I decided to really look at my Twitter analytics. This was a huge learning. And my Google analytics and say, okay, where is my YouTube traffic coming from? And where am I actually getting traction on my Twitter activity? And I realized that I was getting a lot of likes and comments and shares and retweets, but no one was clicking on the video to go watch the video. And that was a traumatic experience for me. It was like, oh my God, I've been putting so much time and energy into posting on Twitter, promoting my videos, and it is getting me nowhere. It is not returning any traffic to YouTube. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. And I stopped doing it like cold turkey. And I wish I'd known this before sort of thing. Pay attention to your analytics. When you are starting to post content, watch what happens. Watch where you're actually getting real actionable traffic. Because if something's not working for you, you don't want to kind of continue on it because doing engagement on social is a lot of work. So anyway, so that's just a little bit of my experience. How did you kind of start off, Kathy? What did you start first with? And then how did that go? I started really with LinkedIn and Twitter, as I said, and I'm just going to admit, I'm not the best at social media. It's something that I'm continuing to do and I think is important and it does work for me in some ways. And I'm still figuring out how I want to continue to optimize it. So I'm just going to be transparent about that. But one of the things I also wanted to come back to that you mentioned is I also, because I like writing content, I did start an email list as well early on in a newsletter. And what I would say, there's a couple of terms that you brought up too that I just wanted to come back to, Philip, and kind of frame for people. And actually, I'm going to step back to this. The whole point of what you said around you don't want to build your business on rented land, if that's the right term. It's kind of you want to have ownership over something. If everything you own is on LinkedIn, well, you know, like then you're not driving traffic to your website. They're not always thinking about you, for example. And it is beneficial to have an email list where you can communicate with your fans. And so you may not agree with all of this, Philip, but I think for some folks, some of these terms can start to feel a little weird yeah. because we're not all comfortable with marketing. I'm even a marketer, but going out on your own and marketing yourself also feels a little different than marketing a brand out in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, you use the term lead magnet and I know some people get a little like cringy with that term. So not everybody may know what a lead magnet is. 
here's how I think about it. It is offering something of value to people in exchange for their email. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it is that you are really offering something of value and you're coming from a spirit of generosity because that's what a lot of content marketing it is, really. It's like, always. Like giving value. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's giving value without expecting anything back. Right. Or the only thing we're expecting back is your email address. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And it's really so that, you know, hopefully you are getting something of value from the exchange of information. And hopefully you're a fan. I appreciated recently rereading something around this where somebody was saying, like, if you start an email list, just know people are going to unsubscribe. Yeah, right. And get ready for it. And just know it's okay. It's a gift, actually, because guess what? That person isn't a part of your tribe. Right. And there's different people out there that have different numbers. Oh, you need a thousand people. Like some people say you need a hundred people. Like just start even with like, who are your top 20 people who love what you're doing and love what you're saying and are going to be willing to share what you're putting out into the world and make it shareable, right? Make it of value so that people do want to subscribe and want to be hearing what you're doing to weigh in on that a little bit so that if people aren't like familiar with what's a lead magnet, it means like, how do you attract people to you? Essentially, how do you bring people into your tribe, if you will? And again, yes, it's generally offering something of value in exchange for their email and then continue to offer something of value. Like if you ask them for your email and you want to send out a newsletter, then figure out what that cadence is for you and just really have it as a goal to offer something of value to the people who are signing up. Yeah. And people say, you know, well, I, you know, I'm, I don't really need an email list. And the reason, apart from wanting to deliver my newsletter, having some success on YouTube and developing a following on YouTube, YouTube doesn't allow you to connect with your subscribers. They allow you to deliver videos to them and their subscribers may or may not get a notification depending on what they have turned on but you have no ability to communicate with those people directly. And so I was schooled very early on that you have to get people off of YouTube and into your email list because YouTube goes down tomorrow, right? Or you think of the people who built brands on Vine, right? People build like million dollar brands on Vine or Periscope and they just went kind of like poof, right? And there goes your brand. And so You have to be really wary of making sure that you own or have direct communication with your audience. And so wherever you're on a platform where you don't have that, Twitter, for instance, for a period of time, you could actually download, I I caught it just in time too. You could download all your Twitter followers and get their email addresses. And then they kind of cut that off so you couldn't do it anymore. But getting people onto your email list is really the gold standard because it's the only thing that you own. It's the only way that you can really communicate with people directly without the influence of an algorithm or the whim of sort of a CEO of a social media company. Yeah, for sure. You were developing an email list. And so how did you start to use that list when you were developing it? I did the same thing as you. I kind of just made a commitment to, I'm going to post, I'm going to send a newsletter every two weeks. And that's, I just held to that commitment. You know, that can change over time. But again, I enjoy writing and I wanted to put thought leadership out into the world. So over time, you had asked about the website too. Over time, I built up content that I was writing. So I was doing regular blog posts and I was doing white papers and things of that nature that I was also putting on the website and sharing that content back out with my subscribers. So that's really how I continue to kind of utilize that email list. 
Hey everybody, I wanted to take a break and tell you that my signature course, Brand Strategy 101, is now open for enrollment inside the Brand Design Masters Academy. This is a foundational course for creative professionals and entrepreneurs who want to get started with brand strategy so you can sell bigger projects, increase your fees for the creative work you already do, and get paid for the thinking and advice you've probably been given away for free. The moment you enroll, you get immediate lifetime access to seven modules of training with over eight hours of instructional videos, 25 lessons in all, plus 24 downloadable strategy tools and conversation guides. In Brand Strategy 101, I've taken complex strategic methodologies used by the world's most respected global branding agencies and crafted them into a deceptively simple turnkey process and toolkit that you can use with your clients, even if you've never done brand strategy before or don't know where to start. Brand Strategy 101 draws from my 25 years of experience working with clients ranging from entrepreneurs to small to medium-sized businesses all the way up to the Fortune 100. So if you're ready to up your game and bulletproof your career and protect your business from the downward pricing pressure of sites like Fiverr and Upwork, then Brand Strategy 101 is the place to start. Just go to philipvandusen.com BS101 and enroll in Brand Strategy 101 today. Again, just go to philipvandusen.com BS101 and enroll now. So let's talk a little bit about back office or even the office itself. So you're on your own. You're not getting on the train or, you know, getting in your car and going to an office anymore. Are you going to work in your home office? Are you going to go to a co-working space? Are you going to go rent someplace? How did you approach that, Kathy? Did you evolve from one thing to another? Did you experiment with things? I know I did. So I'd love to hear what you did. So here's what happened. Like my first year, because I didn't know how it was going to go, I was like, I don't want to take on the overhead. So I went ahead and I just said, I'm going to create my home office and I'm going to work from home. And I'll be honest, it didn't work out so well. <laughs> I mean, it was fine. I It's almost like I need about two to three days at home and two to three days in the office. Like that's really what ended up working out for me. I didn't function well just working at home every single day. So I got a co-working space and that worked a lot better for me. And like I said, I didn't go there every day, but I went there around two to three days a week and then COVID hit. And so I've been at home at, like everybody else and have had the luxury of being at home, I recognize. But again, I'm struggling with this. And so it's happening kind of again. So I am likely going to be getting a co-working space again soon. And I appreciate having that balance of having both some time at home where I don't have to commute and then times when I get myself out of my house. So that's what's worked for me. I did the same thing. I mean, when I started off, I did a, my first year in my home office and I can keep my own company very well. But after a while, I started getting a little rammy. I started not even liking going into that office because it started to feel like too much of a cocoon, too much of a prison. And then this co-working space opened up in my town and I just thought, oh, I'm going to try it out. So you could just not even sign up for a subscription. You could just like buy time for a day. So I did that for a couple days. And I realized, oh my gosh, just being in a space with other people who were working or having a change of environment, I started getting inspired and getting ideas and I was interacting with other people. I take that back. I actually started by going to the library. I went to the library and got out of my house for the first few weeks until I learned about this co-working space. So I actually started by getting out and going to the library. 
Then I started the co-working space. I was in, you know, kind of the group situation of a co-working space for about a year. And then I met somebody who was another designer and we decided to rent a private office together in the co-working space. So we did that for about a year. And then she left and rented her own office somewhere. So I did the same thing. So I left that co-working space and rented my own office in a building that's, you know, a few blocks from my home. But it's a, you know, it's a 10 by 15 foot office, but it's not in my home. And I can create this psychological separation between home life and work life, which is really, really helpful for me. So would you have any kind of recommendations or suggestions to people who, when they're considering this, whether it's home or away, or there's anything in terms of setup or organization or hardware that they should keep in mind? Mm, That's a really good question. A couple of things. One is that you need to figure out what's going to work for you. And so there's no one size fits all. And so that's one thing I just want to note. So don't do what I'm doing. Don't do what Philip's (laughs) doing. Like each of us has our, you know, especially from a sustainable ambition perspective, you need to figure out what structure is going to support your life and your work. So if you have kids at home and you don't want to take the time to commute to different places and that just doesn't work for you, then that doesn't work for you. I will say with the little I know about neuroscience and talking, you know, doing some of the research I've been doing and conversations I've been doing, investing in and figuring out your space and having the cognitive cues that this is my space for work. This is my space for my personal life. If you choose to work from home, I think creating those distinctions is really important. And my understanding is Some of these cues that you have can really help in helping your brain know, okay, now I'm in work mode versus now I'm in uh, personal mode. So I do think thinking about all of those types of things is really important. I mean, there are a lot of systems that one can get, obviously, to kind of support yourself and your business to make sure that it works functionally for you, if you will. So we can certainly, you know, tap into some of those. But from a home office perspective, I guess that's the bit of counsel I would say is just make sure it really functions for you and think about what's going to make it function for you. And I realize in this too, we all have different home environments. So this can be challenging for people like, oh my gosh, now two of us are working from home. How do you make that work? My husband and I struggle with that too. Like, hey, we have to negotiate like, hey, I'm recording some podcasts. Can you be quiet? Like, you know, I mean, there's different things you have to do if you're working outside of your own home. So really being intentional about creating the space that's going to work for you, I think is really important. I think that's super great advice. So let's talk about the back office, the additional tactical skills that you need. In a previous episode, we kind of talked about the difference between a T-shaped skill set and a V-shaped skill set. The T-shaped is kind of where your deep knowledge in one thing which is very shallow and everything else, which is kind of what people are for the most part when they work for an in-house in a company or an agency. But when they get out on their own, they suddenly realize, oh, I've got to learn a little business development, a little account management, a little finance, a little IT, you know? And so let's talk about what you need. First of all, part of it is systems and part of it is the actual tactical skill sets that you need. You've worked with Jenny Blake in the past, and I've worked with her as well, just in terms of having her on the show. So Jenny is all about systems. So how are you in the systems department? Or what do you think is the value of systems in that kind of way? 
Yeah. Well, actually, I have to give a shout out to Jenny Blake. We both have had her on our podcast and her new book, Free Time, I think is great. And I do think what she champions is this idea of, you know, it's very easy when you start to go out on your own. Some of us start to do it because we're like, oh, we want more flexibility, right? And this is her language. You find yourself in a ton of friction and you're just overloaded with all the different things because you're wearing all these different hats now, as you were saying, Philip. And so instead of being in flow and or having flexibility, whatever your term, like you're in a bunch of friction. And so systems really can help you in easing some of that burden. And I will say, I am not the best at systems. I even have like technology as some of my background from my college education and business school, but it's not where I love to spend a lot of time. And yet I'm highly organized. I actually think I have way more systems than I give myself credit for. I personally think what you need to do is if you're not already wearing this hat, it's where like starting as we talked about in our last episode, we may, or maybe we forgot to cover this piece, which is like, do a quick rough business plan. Think about what you need and start to plan out all these different elements of your business. And the reason I'm mentioning that is I think you need to actually think about all the different functional areas of a business. How am I going to handle my finances? How am I going to handle HR if I end up wanting to hire a contractor? How do I even do that? How am I going to run marketing? And that's a lot of what we were talking about in the front of the house, right? What's your marketing and like also starting to talk about sales. But then it's like, oh, how do I handle administrative things? It's not just the technology systems. It's also what process do you put in place to support you running your business? And I think it's sometimes it's easy to overlook that you need some of those things. And I will say, I thank Jenny for what I've learned from her because she helped me put in place more systems. But the final thing I will say about this, Philip, and I'll pause is I also want to forewarn people that you can jump quickly into systems and quickly get overloaded and take on too much too soon. And so that was one of my learnings with systems is also like, be thoughtful about it, you know, put in place what you need, but also don't overreach or be willing to cancel some things if you put some things in place and you're like, you know what, I'm not using that. I don't need that. So anyway, that's kind of been my experience so far with systems. Yeah. I mean, there are some basics that you need and I'll just tick them off. Like you have to have some sort of financial software to track that. You have to have some sort of payment processing so people can pay you. Could be PayPal, could be Stripe, taking credit cards. You could just say, I'm taking checks. You got to mail me a physical check. Project management, social media management, marketing design. So that could be Canva or, or something of that nature. How you're going to manage your calendar could be doing something like Calendly where people can actually go to a website and schedule something with you. Could be you're just manually doing it on Google Calendar. I mean, there are very old school ways of doing all of these things. And there are very kind of SaaS or high kind of tech ways of doing all these things. And I think you're right totally, Kathy, is that it's very, very easy to get overwhelmed with all of the different options, particularly when it comes to like project management. I mean, there's Asana and there's Basecamp and ClickUp and Notion. I mean, the just list goes on and on and everyone's got something fabulous to say about one of them. I've been running my agency for six years now. I don't even use a project management thing. I use Google Sheets. I use spreadsheets. It works for me. So just because everyone else is doing it or using something that's fully flushed or multifunctional doesn't mean you have to. You do eventually have to address the functional aspects of the business you need to address. And 
no matter what that is, there is a software solution for you, but you don't necessarily have to use it. So I'm not advocating for anything in particular. What I'm advocating for is that you keep it simple, especially at the beginning. Don't build too many interlocking tech stack pieces because you will get overwhelmed and it's going to be very difficult to manage. Can I just say, Phil, I, I totally agree with that. And I think what we're also saying, but resource yourself some. And just know that there are plenty of resources out there for you. And this is also where being a part of a community and asking people what works right. for you can can also really, really help. So, so let's talk about the people part of it as we close up episode four. There's a people part of building a business too in terms of establishing the infrastructure or the resources of your business. So how would you think about that, Kathy, in terms of the people aspect of resourcing? Yeah, this is a great question. One of the things that I would say, especially if you are choosing like, okay, I'm going to just step out on my own and it's just going to be me, is to think about the fact that it really doesn't have to be just you. Now, it may just be you, yes, as the core of like solo employee of your business, but running a business by oneself can be very lonely. And I think what you've consistently heard from Philip and I is that first off, putting yourself in community is really important. By the way, if we all haven't learned this through COVID, we are social beings. We need to be amongst other people and be in conversation with other people. And so joining some type of community can be super helpful. The other thing though is, and Philip, you alluded to this, I think I alluded to it as well, is that you can partner. It doesn't have to be you doing all of the work. You can bring contractors in to support you as part of your business to take on different types of work. So that's another way to think about resourcing and connections. And then there's plenty of other resources too that you can tap into for additional support. And I would personally really think about, do you want to take on an employee or do you want to just work with contractors and really legally HR issues? I live in California. Like you really, and I, don't get me wrong. You really don't want employees. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds so awful, but you, there's so many regulations around when you start to take on full-time employees yeah. that you just want to be really thoughtful about it. And so your business model might be such that you're going to jump into that right away. And then I would just say, make sure you have all of the legal support or whatever the proper support is around that. But also don't think you absolutely have to do that. There are ways to tap into fractional resources that can support you from, you know, administrative support to marketing support, et cetera. So I really think it's important to recognize, and I have to say, this was something I had to learn and figure out like, oh my gosh, how do I find people to work with? How do I bring people in? And you have to start to realize that investing in some of these resources will allow you to grow more and allow you to scale. I think the point that you made is so well-founded in terms of the legality of having full-time employees. And the fact is, is that we are seeing this in major corporations in the United States. I mean, that's one of the things I talked about in the first couple episodes was the fact that major corporations, major agencies are outsourcing to individual contractors more and more. We are developing a robust contractor economy right now. And so if you are an individual contributor, it even makes more sense for you to kind of work in that same way. And there's the benefits of working in that way, number one, so you can expand your offering in terms of what you can offer and the types of work you can take on, meaning 
partnering people to get their skill set to deliver the thing. But here's the other key part of it for me, which is that it's also about referrals and business development. That the more people you partner with, you bring them in. It's like the sharing economy. You bring them in, you work a project with them, you bring them in for a client, and they are going to do the same for you. And they are going to refer you to other people. Maybe some work comes down the line that's totally outside of their skill set and they refer you. So that sort of relationship building is also super helpful in terms of business development. So that's another thing that you should take into consideration as you think about building and utilizing a network of partnerships within a new business. Absolutely. The other thing I just want to call out, which is a huge benefit is think about it as I can potentially, assuming these people are out on their own too, who are all my favorite people to work with? Exactly. I mean, I can go like work with my friends. That would be amazing. And so there are some benefits to this as well in that regard. So I think that's a great place to kind of tie up episode four. And so just to give a kind of a a shout out to what episode five is going to be about the last episode in this series, we're going to talk about getting your brand and your new business actually going. In our car or trip analogy, it's going to be starting the car up and starting to head down the driveway. Like, what do you got to do to actually press the start button, make things start happening? So that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. So Kathy, it's been awesome talking to you. And I hope everyone comes and joins us in the next episode. Yes, I agree, Philip. This has been wonderful. Thanks for the conversation. And we'll see you guys in the last episode to get you going and moving in the direction of starting your business. So we'll look forward to talking to you then. If you'd like to help support the Brand Design Masters podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you want to stay up to date on all our content, products, courses, and live video shows, head over to philipvandusen.com slash muse and sign up for the Brand Muse newsletter. That's where we share all the latest news, resources, articles, books, and videos that we recommend to help you build and improve your creative practice, personal brand, and business. That's philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. Thanks again for listening. Bye for now.